Thank you, Scott Pagan. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 in your Bibles. I hope that uh, you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. Uh, That's a wonderful song. Of course, it speaks about a couple of passages of Scripture where the Bible tells us that uh, death and hell have been conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ when he died, was buried, he rose again, he conquered death and hell. And, uh, and so those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted him for the salvation of their souls, they too, we too, have also conquered death and hell. And uh, those who have trusted Christ as their Savior will never go to hell. We, our physical bodies will suffer death. Um, but someday, and many of us here, I should say this, many of us here have said goodbye to people that we love, very dear people that we love, maybe grandparents or parents, um, close friends or other relatives who, were, who had trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we laid their physical body to rest in a grave, knowing that someday when Jesus Christ returns to catch his own away to be with him for all of eternity, that physical body of our loved one is also going to be raised from the dead. And uh, God is going to remake it anew and rejoin it with that person's soul. So it's a wonderful truth. And so this song that was just sung, it isn't just someone who was just writing lyrics uh, just off the top of his head. He was taking Bible truth, things that we hold very, very dear. Bible truth, what God has said, and he put it to, put it to music. So wonderful truth. And for me, it, it rejoices my heart because there are many people, there are many funerals I've done, um, and uh, we've said goodbye to people that we love very much. But if that person has trusted Christ as their Savior and you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you will see them again and be able to serve God with them for all of eternity. Um, I do want to make just a quick announcement here this morning before we get into the message, but the Pierces are going to be moving to Florida. So uh, they think it's God's will. I have to go along with it, but uh, we're going to miss you both very, very much. And uh, they're going to be heading to Florida at some time in the near future. I don't know exactly when. They'll be around in and out and around for a while. So make sure you say goodbye to them. Um, as they've been part of our church family for a long, long time, many years, almost 30 years, isn't it? It's been more than 30 for you, right, David? I won't ask. All right. John chapter 10 is where you're at. I do want to echo Pastor Scott's thank you for the men who worked on the roof. Uh, Just so you know, this was not something that, that was generated or happened out of our church office. This wasn't one of the pastor's ideas. Uh... One of uh, the ladies in our church uh, heard about a family in our church who had major roof leaks. And I will say, when we got up there to tear it off on Friday, there were spots where you could just see the plank uh, open. And, uh, of course, it had been like that for a while. And that that lady got burdened about it and said she wanted to buy all the materials for it, if there could be some men who would put it on. One of the men in our church came to me about a month ago and said, if this lady would like to purchase the materials... Could we, get, could, we, could we put the roof on for her? And I said, who's we? <laughs> and, uh, and he really ran with it, got a hold of one of our contractors in the church, and he went out and f- 
figured it out, what we would need for materials. I think it was about 24 square, something like that. And uh, it was a fairly steep pitch, at least that's what my legs, my 40-year-old legs told me. Uh, a couple of the guys were snickering because I was like plastered onto the roof, you know, not wanting to move. But uh, whatever the case, we tore it all off on Friday. We got done about, we left about 6.30, I think. Uh, we, we left, and then uh, Saturday we, we, re- we roofed the whole thing with 12 guys, 11, 12 guys. So it was a big deal. Um, we were putting the ridge cap on at about 4.15 yesterday, and I started to feel raindrops. And so to one of the guys, I said, are you spitting? I'm, <laughs> stop spitting, you know, and... Uh, and so we got off the roof, it started to rain, and we buttoned up a few more things pretty much off the ground and cleaned up, and we were done. We were all wet, but uh, it rained hard last night, and as it was coming down, I, I had great joy knowing that uh, there were no leaks in that home. And, uh, but I'll tell you what thrilled my heart the most, and I think that what happened uh, Friday and Saturday, I think, is a, uh, a picture, a glimpse into what God is doing in our hearts as a church here. And uh, there were a couple of men who took time off work on Friday to come out and tear off the roof. Um, tearing off the roof is terrible, okay? It's terrible. Um, and, uh, but guys took off work to do that. And, uh, and then you took your Saturdays and you came and spent the whole day out there serving and loving the body of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, that's what, that's what got me the most, was uh, your love for the Lord and your, willing to ser- your love for him and your willing to serve the body of Christ. And uh, I know that's just a microcosm. I believe that's happening all over the place in different ways. And I want to encourage you as your pastor and thank you for your love for the Lord. You are a great encouragement to me. Okay. John chapter 10 is where we're at. Now, some of the guys on the roof yesterday were surmising this would either be a really long message or a real short one. Either they figured my body will give out at some point during the message, or another one said that there will be more ums in this message than in any other message, (laughs) so I won't be able to think clearly, in which case then the message would grow. So we'll see what happens. I did not try it out in my dog this morning. John chapter 10 is where we're at. Now keep in mind, remember what's, what the context is here. In, in chapter 9, do you remember Jesus passed by and he's in the temple. He saw the blind man, a man blind from his birth. Jesus heals the blind man. There's all this confusion. Uh, uh, the, the blind man didn't know who he was, didn't know who Jesus was. Uh, the religious leaders of the temple wanted to know who it was that healed him. And on the Sabbath, again... You know, on the Sabbath, and Jesus was doing this, it was antagonizing the religious leaders, that's true, but he also was giving them the gospel, he was presenting himself to them. And so it wasn't out of spite or animosity, Jesus, the truth, the way, and the life had come into his own, and that included the religious leaders. Remember, Nicodemus was a religious leader, and so Jesus came to save people from their sin, and not just blind men on the side of the street, but also the religious leaders. But as you know, and as we've been studying in the, in the gospel according to John here, the religious leaders didn't receive Jesus' message. And in fact, they were so angry with him. They hated him. And you remember what they did to the blind man who'd been saved, who'd been blind from his birth? Uh, he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, believed that he was the Messiah. And the temple leaders, or the religious leaders of, of Israel, were so angry with this blind man... <laughs> 
for being healed on the Sabbath and believing that Jesus was the Messiah, that they threw him out of the temple. So this man comes to sight. He's no longer a beggar. He can be a part of his society and live a normal life. And he might even have thought he could worship God within the temple as he'd heard people go by him all of his life to worship the Lord. And yet he gets thrown out of the temple that day. But the blind man was able to see. And the men who could see, who thought they could see, the religious leaders who thought they knew everything, had everything figured out. They knew what the truth was, they thought. They knew what the error was, they thought. They thought they could see And they were really the blind men. They were the ones who were spiritually blind. And Jesus, of course, as we've studied in chapter 10, begins to teach them. And he tells them that about the fold, the sheepfold. And, and of course, Israel would have been within that sheepfold or the fold. And there was a door in those uh, those old folds in those days, normally made out of stone or maybe some briars or something like that. There would be no gate. The shepherd would sleep there, and he would let his sheep into the fold, and the sheep would stay the night in the fold. Uh, Sometimes shepherds would actually sleep at the gate of the fold to protect the sheep. And of course, as the sheep would go and come, he would inspect them and care for them, and then he would lead them out to green pasture to nourish them and to feed them and take care of them. And, And you remember how we talked about the hireling shepherd? who just does his job for money but really doesn't care at all about the sheep. He just does what he has to do. He has no affection for the sheep. He doesn't love the sheep. And Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, he's saying, you are false shepherds. You're the ones who are climbing over the wall of the the sheepfold and you're getting in with the sheep and you're, you're thieves and you're robbers. You're taking advantage of the sheep for your own personal gain. And he was very, very straightforward. In in contrast to them, not in comparison to them, but in stark contrast to these false shepherds, these false religious leaders, Jesus said that he was the shepherd. And I love the part part where he talks about how there's another part of sheep that are going to be joined together, and that would have been a reference to us as Gentiles being saved as well. Let's pick up our passage here in verse number 22. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter and we'll pray. Look at verse number 22 says this, and it was at Jerusalem, we're in chapter 10, and it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon, Solomon's porch. That was a shelter, sheltered area of the temple. Verse, 20, verse 24, then came the Jews round about him, the religious leaders came round about him and said unto him, how long dost thou make us doubt? That's interesting. They accused Jesus of making them doubt. If thou be the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. So they bring this, their hatred, their animosity, their greed all comes to a head here in a confrontation. They confront Jesus. Verse 25, and Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I'll stop for just a moment and say this. Do you, when the word of God is taught and preached, 
Do, do you sense the Lord speaking to you by his word? Do you know his voice? And not to say that you always understand it. Not to say that it doesn't take you some time to figure things out. Not to say that you don't sometimes fall like I fall along the way in this journey that we call life. But when Jesus speaks to you by his spirit and by his word, do you recognize his voice as being a voice of truth? Because he says here, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them. And here is the litmus test for someone who is truly a follower of Jesus or one of his sheep. And they follow me. They follow me. That's what Jesus says. Look at verse 28. He says, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, talking spiritually here. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's eternal security. I'm so thankful for that. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, Jesus says. They wanted, they, what did they say? Tell us plainly. And he says, I and my Father are one. Well, that's plain enough. Verse 31 Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For for which of those works do ye stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. There's a passage in Psalms that Jesus says, in a courtroom setting, so to speak, ye are gods, your judges. Verse 35, if he, called, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, Jesus says, believe me not. But if I do, Though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized. And there Jesus abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem, the supposedly the most religious city on the face of the earth, with the most well-versed, knowledgeable, scripturally knowledgeable men on the face of the earth, where they who had rejected him. He goes back to Jordan where he was first baptized and only baptized. And many believed on him there. The men who thought they knew everything, who thought they had everything figured out, they knew what was right, they knew what was wrong, they rejected their Messiah in Jerusalem. And he leaves there and he goes back to Jordan. And there, many, many believe upon him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us. I pray this morning as we study your word. Uh, enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Lord, we've got many, we've got busy lives. We've got a lot of different things going on. Some of us in this room have some real stresses in our lives, and it's hard to set those aside at all because they're so overwhelming. Father, I pray 
uh, whether they just be distractions or genuine trials and, and heartaches. Father, I pray that you'd use your word this morning by your spirit in our hearts and our lives. Father, we need you. We need, we need your spirit in us, working and leading in us. We need your word. So teach us, I pray, by it, and I'll praise your name for it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look again at verse number 22, and I want to begin by noticing just very simply in chapter 10, verse 22, that Jesus is challenged, his authority is challenged by these religious leaders. And let me ask you this before we look at the verses, uh, these three verses. Do you find that you in your life challenge Jesus' authority? And I'll say it another way. Do you find in your life that you, are, could you be characterized by regularly challenging God's authority? In other words, God says one thing, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, or his spirit is leading you maybe to honor your parents, as he always would. But you don't. You challenge God's authority. Are you that kind of an individual? Is that your character? By the way, uh, those of us who could be characterized as... uh, When I ask you, do you challenge God's authority? Most of us would be like, well, no. Who would do that? These guys do, but we're not like them. But you know, you know something? People who challenge God's authority, it's telltale that we're challenging God's authority when we actually challenge the authority, the human authority that God's put in our lives. Okay. So if you want to know, do I struggle with challenging God's authority? All right, the answer first, very quickly, may come off our tongues. Well, no. Um, but let me ask you a follow-up. Do you challenge your God-given human authority. Yeah, well, that, they're not God. And we could go a different direction here, and I'm not going to go there, but remember, all authority is given by God. He raises up, and he takes down. Okay. And, uh, and so is there an error, an error of rebellion in your spirit toward your God-given human authority? Because if there is, you, you struggle with God's authority in your life. He brings things into our lives. He brings trials and heartaches, grief sometimes. Even as Job said, God giveth, the Lord giveth, and he taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Job got it, but Job still struggled with God's authority. And God, to the point where God is telling Job, Do you, can you explain to me how the world works, Job? And Job says, no, I can't. I really can't. Well, then, and the question God was asking Job was, well, then why are you questioning what I'm doing in your life? And the, the reality is, and this is convicting, because all of us sometimes struggle with what God allows to happen in our lives. We do. And it's called the sin of unbelief. It's called the sin of unbelief, and it is sin. And we ought to see it as such. And these religious leaders, they challenged, and they kept challenging. We've seen this. This isn't new. But here it comes to a head. They're challenging Jesus' authority. Look at verse number 22. Look at verse 22, and I'll read down through verse 24. It says, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, in verse 22, it it tells us here that 
he tells us where Jesus was. He was at Jerusalem. It tells us it's winter time, and it's particularly at the Feast of the Dedication. Now, that's not something we're too familiar with. It's worth uh, telling you a little bit about it. Uh, what is the Feast of the Dedication? Well, it's better known as the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. We've heard of that. Um, most of us haven't heard of the Festival of Lights. Well, the Festival of Lights, or the Feast of the Dedication, hadn't been around very long, only about 200 years when Jesus was here. Um, in other words, Moses hadn't instituted it, or God hadn't instituted the Feast of the Dedication. But it was a very important feast within the Jewish culture. It was one where a lot of people would participate in it. And the Feast of the Dedication was a winter holiday, okay? It was a holiday they would celebrate during the time of winter, and they still celebrate it to this day, Hanukkah, normally in late November, early December, or in December sometime. It actually uh, was observed starting on the 25th of uh, what the Jewish calendar would be Kislev, uh, which would be in November or December, uh, depending on the Jewish calendar and the, the lunar solar calendar. And during the Feast of the Dedication, Jews would celebrate the dedication of the Second Temple. I don't want to... Some of you love history, and some of you are really in tune, and others are like, uh, what are you talking about? So follow. This is, this is very neat, even if you don't love history. But the, the holiday began in about 200 B.C., 198 B.C. it began, when the Syrian Empire, led by King Antiochus III, attacked and conquered the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, okay? So he took over Israel, and Antiochus III was a benevolent dictator, so he kind of let the, he kind of let the, by the way, I use that term on one of my children, that she's a benevolent dictator. You know, she rules the group, but benevolently. You know, she kind of gives them here and there, allows them a little bit of freedom here and there. Anyway, that's another thing. But King Antiochus III was a benevolent dictator, and he allowed the Jewish people to, keep, to retain their culture, to retain their identity, to live freely for the most part. Okay. Now, there was still some oppression, but for the most part, they had quite a lot of freedom, and he was fairly tolerant overall. But in 175, 175 B.C., his son, Antiochus IV, and they did that back then. We don't do that today. You know, we could have Seth the first, Seth the second, Seth the third. That would be interesting. But Antiochus IV took over in 175 B.C., and in 168, he actually massacred many Jews, and he outlawed their religion, Judaism. Okay, So he massacred, he begins to kill Jews, and he, he outlaws Judaism, and he goes into the temple and he steals much of the wealth from the temple. The very following year, in 167 B.C., Antiochus IV went a step further, and he was just trying to antagonize the Jews. And he went so far as he, he erected a pagan idol, Zeus, in the temple there in Israel. And you can imagine how the Jews responded to this. He went one step further, and he began to, to sacrifice pigs on the altar in the temple. Okay, yes. Now, we're not real familiar with Jewish culture, but, but all of us here know that that was about ten steps too far, and the Jews struggled with it tremendously. Well, there was a, there was a man in Israel who, um, Judas Maccabees was his name, and he's not recorded in the Word of God for us, 
but he's an uh, extra-biblical historical figure. And Judas Maccabees, and Maccabees means the hammer. So Judas the hammer. <laughs> That's quite a name. We could I could I wish I'd known that I could have worked that into one of my son's names, you know. Will the hammer, Will Maccabees or something like that. Anyway, so Judas Maccabees, Maccabees led a revolt, okay? And it was successful. And he actually overtook the Syrian he was able to drive out the Syrians for the most part and was actually able to to reestablish what I would even call an empire within Israel run by Jews that lasted over 100 years. Okay, so it was a big deal. And one of the things that Judas Maccabees led the people of Israel to do was to reestablish, after recapturing the temple, he ordered it to be cleansed, a new altar to be built, new holy vessels to be made. And after after those steps, the, the priests rededicated the temple to the Lord. But the problem was, when they did this, and it all was happening, you can imagine it was a revolution. So there was a lot of things in turmoil and upheaval during that time. One of the things that happened when they, when they cleansed out the temple, they went to go ahead and light um, the, the candlesticks in the temple. And when they did so, they only had olive oil, and that's what was required by the Jewish law to burn. It had to be sanctified and those sort of things. They only found enough to burn for one night. But the problem was they, they needed eight more days, and the rituals required it, eight more days for the olive oil to be purified so it could be used in the temple for this purpose. So they only had enough for one night. So they went ahead and they used that flask, okay, to light the menorah. They lit the menorah. They only had one for, enough for one day, but it actually burned historically. It's recorded. This is not biblically. I'm giving you historical account. It only burned, it, it burned for what, they only had use for one day, it burned for eight days in a row. And, uh, well, and so the Jews instituted this, the, the, uh, what we're talking about here and what we see in verse 22, the Feast of the Dedication or the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah, and they still celebrate it today, remembering those people who stood up for their nation, those people who trusted God, those people who just didn't give in to their oppressors and allow them to defile the temple. So they celebrate those who stood up in courage, who trusted God, and God supernaturally blessed them and provided for them. It's interesting, and I, and I bring this to your attention because, think about this, Jesus is walking in the temple during what we would call the Festival of Lights. and He is the light of the world there in the temple, these religious leaders surround what the Bible, who the Bible identifies as the light of the world during the festival of lights, and they can't see him. I mean, they can see him. You see, they don't know who he is. They don't see him as the light of the world. They're not trusting in him. Uh, during, during the uh, festival of lights or Hanukkah, they'll take Psalm 30 and they'll read it, and, and they'll, it, it talks about how... Uh, God gives victories over his enemies and how God will replace mourning and sorrow with hope and joy. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. But the Feast of of the Dedication had been observed for thousands of years, and so it it, it has been now celebrated for thousands of years, and it celebrates God's protection and the victory he gives his faithful people who are willing to bravely continue to worship him in the face of persecution. Now look at verse number 24, 
And uh, look what it says at the end of verse 24. They come to Jesus here and they surround him and they say, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, how many of you think that these men were sincere in their question? If you're the Messiah, would you please tell us they don't say please? No, they're not sincere. Now, I think there might have been some in the area who were sincere. Is this really the Christ? But, but these men primarily are not sincere. I think they just wanted, tra- wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to uh, ensnare him. They wanted to find a reason to destroy him. I think there probably were some who were sincerely perplexed by Jesus' teaching. Had, had Jesus already claimed to be the Messiah? Was he the Messiah? I think some of them probably had those questions. Look back to chapter 8 in verse 12 for just a moment. Chapter 8 and verse 12. Because to the question, had he already revealed himself to them? And I believe the answer is a resounding yes. But they're challenging him here. Look at John chapter 8 and look at verse number 12. It says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is the conversation he had had with the religious leaders already. Look over, you're still in chapter 8. Look over to verse 23. Verse 23, and I'll read down through verse 25. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. So, you can go back to chapter 10. That was a conversation that Jesus had already had with these men. He'd been telling them, I am the light of the world. You need to believe in me. You need to trust in me. Jesus had been teaching these men these things. The problem wasn't that Jesus hadn't claimed to be the Messiah. That's not the problem. He had claimed to be the Messiah. The problem was that Jesus hadn't claimed to be the Messiah that these men wanted him to be. You see the difference? Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah. The the problem, the issue they had, he, he wasn't who they wanted him to be. You know, as I think about that, I'm reminded of us. Outside of salvation aside for just a moment, a person who, is, who has received Christ, who has believed upon him as, as the Lord and as God and who he, he says he is in the Bible, someone who is truly born again, we who are saved still struggle with this sometimes. We say we believe in God. We, we say we, we trust him to do what is right, and we know he always does what is right, but yet there are times in our lives where we're overwhelmed by anxiety and fear, doubt, And we say we believe in the Lord, but we wish he was different or he he was doing things differently in our lives than he is doing. You know, these men, unless they repented of their unbelief, which is so obvious in this passage, they died and and they went to hell for all of eternity and they are there to this day. Now, we who are saved don't have to worry about death and hell, but, but friend, our unbelief can look an awfully lot 
an awful lot like their unbelief. God, I trust you, but would you do it? Would you be who I want you to be in this situation? Would you work according to my timetable? God, would you reveal things to me? I mean, you need to do what I need you to do, what I think I need you to do right now. It really is a very miserable place to be. Whether, it was, it, whether in these men's life it was a miserable place to be, a place of unbelief. And so too is it a miserable place to be in your life and in mine when we are insistent in our hearts on God being who we want him to be. Listen, God is not who we want him to be. God is who he is. He's unchangeable. I'm so thankful for that. He is holy. He is righteous. He always does what is right. He always does what is best. But what he does is not always easy for you and for me. And that's where you and I struggle sometimes. Because we want an easier way out. He provides for us in such abundance. His ways are perfect. His blessings are sure. His mercies are new every morning. And yet, all of us at times in our lives, even though God pours out, outpours unto us his blessings according to his wisdom and his understanding and his knowledge, giving us exactly what we need at exactly the right time, all of us in this room at times stiffen our necks and harden our hearts in frustration because, okay, thank you for this, but what about that? Are you unaware, and I'm careful here, are you unaware of these other needs that I have? Do you not know my suffering in these other areas? And I'm careful here, but I think I'm close to where we're at sometimes in our hearts. And where that is sometimes is a heart of rebellion. God, I don't like what you're doing. And we could put it another way, in a way that none of us would ever put it. God, I don't like who you are. And that's where these men were. That's where these men were. Tell us plainly. Tell us who you are. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. The problem wasn't. Had God told them plainly? Had Jesus plainly revealed it? He had. The problem was, they didn't like who he was. That was the problem. You know, our human flesh is all the same in that way. You know, I read about these guys in these, in these passages we've worked our way through, and there are times where I'm frustrated with them. Sometimes I'm annoyed with them. Sometimes I don't like them. Okay? Sometimes there's not much like to like about them. Rejecting the Messiah, taking up stones to stone him, plotting to kill him, accusing him of being demon-possessed. Accusing him of being a liar. I mean, there's not much to like about these men. And then I think about my flesh and how my flesh responds to the one that I have believed upon. So the the problem was not that Jesus hadn't revealed himself to them. The problem was they didn't like who he was. They really didn't trust him. I think maybe that's a very simple way to put it, but I think it's convicting They didn't trust Jesus. They didn't trust him. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 where it says, Let your conversation, your manner of life, the way you live your life, let your conversation be without covetousness, desiring what you don't have. But be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, 
I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In other words, God's saying, I'm enough for you. I am everything that you need. Is there anyone here this morning, and don't raise your hand, is there anyone here this morning who's struggling with covetousness? Desiring what you don't have? Discontent with what you do have? By the way, discontentment finds its way into every area of our lives, whether it's the vehicle that we have in our driveway, the house we live in, to the yard we have, to the spouse we have, the church we have, the place of employment we have, to the employer we work for that we have, to the employees who work for us that we have. You see, it doesn't find any, it could be anything. Discontentment shows itself everywhere, all the time. You open the refrigerator, that's all I've got? You go to the grocery store, they don't have what I want, right? You go out to eat this afternoon, they bring you something, that's it? Now, again, I'm not saying don't send it back if they don't cook it right, don't go beyond this. I'm just going to be content with what, what they've brought me. My filet mignon has been cooked down to a, roughly the size of beef jerky, I'll just be content. No, you should send it back with a smile. Thank you. I'll wait. You can try again. Okay? But so some things God gives us, the, you can send things back. But, but you know what? Discontentment, covetousness shows itself everywhere in our lives. And God is saying, and Jesus, in God, in human flesh, Jesus came unto his own, and they didn't trust him, and he didn't, he didn't according to them, meet their needs. What was it that they were looking for? They were looking for someone who would come in and break the Roman yoke of bondage. They were looking for someone to come in to set up the literal throne of David there in Jerusalem. They were looking for someone who would liberate the people and give them material prosperity. What are you looking for? What am I looking for? If we really could have everything that was on our wish list today, would it truly satisfy this wicked human flesh forever? Would your flesh be satisfied if you could have and you name it? I imagine the answer is no. There would be something else. Or even if God could, God chose to supernaturally heal an individual who, uh, or to heal a marriage you know that there would be other things that would come along in the span of life and you again would find yourself at a crossroads of either I'm going to trust God and knowing that he is good and righteous and, and, and loving, I'm going to trust him or I'm going to stiffen my neck and grip my teeth and, and clench my fist and say, God, what are you doing in my life? Why is it that you have this authority in my life to do this? I shouldn't have to put up with this. It's a terrible place to be, and it's where these men were. Before I were too hard on these unbelieving religious leaders of Israel, do you remember John the Baptist? If anyone believed in Jesus as the Messiah, it was John the Baptist. You remember, he baptizes Jesus. Um, uh, this God, the Father was pleased. The Holy Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove. And, and John the Baptist, is a, he, Jesus has been identified to John the Baptist as the Christ. And so he goes around preaching Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. But you remember when John the Baptist was in prison? You remember what happened? 
he sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and they ask Jesus this question. When the men were come unto him, it says in Luke 7, verse 20, they said, John Baptist hath sent unto us, saying uh, this, quote, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? End quote. John the Baptist, who identified Jesus as the one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. John the Baptist, while he was suffering in prison, what does he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus with the question of, are you really the one? Are you the one, or should I be looking for someone else? Why? Because even in John the Baptist's mind, as a human being, as a man, as he's, Jesus, the Messiah's coming, wasn't panning out the way he thought it was going to pan out. How many, of, how many of us in this room, our lives have panned out the way we thought they were going to pan out? Yes, bliss and harmony, excess, things in abundance, everything's easy, no sickness, right? You don't ever struggle with sin and you never fall. You're perfect. No. For most of us in this room, there's at least different areas where things haven't quite worked out the way we thought they would, or maybe we hoped they would. The question is, do we believe that Jesus is the one? So in some ways, as I look at these men and they're saying, tell us plainly, are you the one or aren't you? I guess in some ways I can understand them. I almost wish I couldn't. I almost wish I couldn't understand them at all and just say, you know what, those guys are ridiculous. I have no idea what they were thinking. Actually, I kind of do. I wonder if I might have been more like them. I don't know. So Jesus gave these religious leaders a truthful answer, but it wasn't the answer they were looking for. Uh, Look at verse 25, and and I want to notice secondly, first of all, the religious leaders challenged Jesus' authority. Now look at verse 25, how Jesus answers their challenge. Look at verse 25. I'll read down through verse 30. Jesus answers them, and this is his teaching. Jesus answered them, and he said, "I, I, I did tell you, or I told you, he says, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. And by the way, in this section, this is called omniscience. God knows. He he knows. He's always known who would believe on him and who would not believe on him. He says in verse 26, Ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. They had asked, Tell us plainly, are you the Christ or aren't you? He says, he gives them an answer, and it's plain enough. I and my Father are one. Now, let me just tell you, that wasn't the answer they were expecting. That about knocked their socks off if they were wearing them, which I know they weren't, probably sandals. But that about knocked their socks off, okay? And and so much so that they take up stones, they want to stone him. But Jesus reveals himself to them. You know, Jesus had been revealing exactly who he was, two different individuals along the way. You remember the woman at Samaria? Jesus with her tells her who he was. Drink of me. 
You'll never thirst again. Uh, do you remember uh, his apostles in chapter 6? When he asked, who say ye that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest of the apostles, says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And remember Jesus asking them, who, are you going to leave me too? And, and Peter says, where else will I go? Where else can we go? There's no place else to go. You're the Christ. And Jesus didn't deny it. He was declaring himself to be that. And most recently in chapter 9, with the blind man, look back there, chapter 9 and verse 35. Chapter 9 and verse 35. Jesus seeks him out. In verse 35 it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the temple. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And the, blind, the formerly blind man answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So Jesus had been revealing himself. Jesus had answered the demands of the religious leaders in verse 25. Look at chapter 10 and verse 25. They had asked him, tell us plainly. In verse 25, he says, I told you. You already know. You already have the truth that you need. Jesus had publicly told them through his works. And that's what Jesus talks about, as I've just read. Jesus answered to their demand, tell us plainly. It had been given all throughout his ministry There had been many great works that Jesus had done in front of these religious men, but just a few of them, I think, as given us to in John, were the cleansing of the temple in Jesus' first year of public ministry. He goes in, he drives them out. That was supernatural. They had witnessed that. How about the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda on the the Sabbath day? They had witnessed that, and they hated him for that and wanted to kill him for that. They knew that that was supernatural. They knew that he was God. How about this healing of the blind man? These three incredible miracles happened in Jerusalem right in front of the religious leaders of Israel. And each one of these works of Jesus were a declaration of who Jesus really was. And so they asked him, tell us plainly. And the word plainly means be logical or be specific. Stop beating around the bush. Just come right out and tell us who you are. And so he answered them. Look at verse 26. He says, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. Now, we don't know who is going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, okay? But God does. And he goes on to say, and I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life. That's that's life that never ends. I'm so thankful for that. When you say goodbye to a loved one who has trusted Christ as their Savior, their soul goes immediately from this body to immediately to be present with the Lord. They do not suffer spiritual death. They're not separated from God at all. So he says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And I would say this, for a person who is truly born again, a person cannot even, they themselves do not have the power to take their salvation away. The Pope can't say, Seth Ferguson isn't saved and take my salvation away. I can't look at my children and say, I'm taking your salvation away. Not if they're truly born again. 
You can't take it away from one another. And I would say this, I can't even take my own salvation away based upon this scripture. Why? Because our soul is held in the cleft of God's hand. He holds us there. You know, these men wanted clearly to know if Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who would break the power of Rome and set them back in a place of privilege. But Jesus' answer was bigger than their thinking. Look at verse 30. He says, I and my Father are one. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is God. Look at verse number 31 and notice how the religious leaders argue with Jesus. And can again I ask you this question before we look at this verse. Are you characterized by arguing with Jesus? Because if you are, if you're characterized by arguing with God's word, you're in bad company. Are you characterized by arguing with your God-given authority? I mean, here again, he came unto his own. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. They would not receive him. They wouldn't receive the creator. They wouldn't receive the Messiah. They wouldn't receive the truth talker. Truth in flesh. They wouldn't receive God. He was their authority. And, and, and they rejected, they argue with him. I see that they challenged him, but now I see them arguing with Jesus. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, it says this. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If ye called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified, he's talking about himself, and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. I could say that to you this morning. If, if Jesus is not who he did not do what he said he did. If he cannot do what he says that he can do, don't believe him. But if I do, Jesus says, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. You know, every time Jesus claimed to be deity, they tried to kill him. Every time he came close to identifying as being God, they took up stones to stone him. But did you notice that they didn't throw them at him? It says in verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why didn't they throw, him, throw them at him? Why didn't they kill Jesus? It wasn't time. And I'll say it another way, they couldn't. Oh, they could pick him up. They could look at him with hatred in their eyes. But they couldn't do a thing. Because he was God. And he is God. And you know, there really is no point in you and me acting like these Jewish religious leaders. There's really no point in us debating him and challenging his authority and why God's allowed certain things into our lives that he's allowed. There's really no point in arguing with him. There's no, really no point. He's God. And he's going to do what he wants to do. And arguing with him and being frustrated with him and dragging our feet through life really isn't going to help a thing. And I know the feeling. I know the human feeling where, you know what, okay, I'll do it, but 
I'll, I'll endure it, but not because I want to. I'd sure have chosen a different way. You know, it's so repulsive, though, when we look at it in their lives, isn't it? It's so repulsive. It's so ugly. I know the feeling. The fact is, they were completely powerless against him. Jesus was surrounded by this circle of men. He was hemmed in by them. They pick up rocks, but they're completely powerless against him. His hour was not yet come. In Acts chapter 22, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Peter was preaching and he recalls Jesus' crucifixion. And he says something that I find amazing and I ought to remind you of it at this time. But you know what? He was, Jesus was invincible against all that opposed him until God said it was time. Listen to what, how Peter preached it. He said, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's when he died. Jesus died on that cross when when God said it was time for him to die. By the determinate counsel. That's an interesting word, determinate. has the idea of God knowing beforehand and determining it to be so. That's when Jesus died. When Jesus bowed his head and the Bible records, he, as God, gave up the ghost. He willingly yielded up his spirit. He died for the sins of all of the world, your sins and mine so that you and I could be saved from death and hell. So Jesus has pointed them back to his works. He had showed them of his father, that, that he shows them that these works are of my father. You know, Jesus wanted them to face the reality of what he had done. It's wonderful to me how Jesus always seemed to give God the glory. That's interesting to me. He always insisted that it was God who was working in him and through him. And you, and if, if you're having success in your, in your marriage relationship, you ought to give God the glory. If you're having success in training up your children the way that they should go, you ought to give God the glory. If you've been saved and forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future, and heaven is your home based upon the truth of the word of God, you ought to give God the glory, and I ought to give God the glory. We ought to give God the glory. Jesus did. It, it, in fact, it coincides with what Peter said while he was preaching that sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2 and verse 22, he says this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, listen to this, which God did by him in the midst of you. And Jesus is pointing them back in our passage to the works in verse 32. Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Why are you killing me? Look back to what I've done. By the way, one of the greatest uh, witnessing tools that you have is not a gospel tract, though they're great, and I encourage you to pass them out to people that you care about. One of the greatest witnessing tools that you have is what God has done in your life, the miraculous work that God's done in your life. You say, well, Pastor Ferguson, I'm not perfect. We know ourselves pretty well. That is true. We know ourselves pretty well. The Bible tells us this old body is going to have to be put off so a new body can be put on. Okay? That's how defiled this old body is. Okay? We're all thankful for that. A new body is going to remake it anew. Okay? New without sin. But the fact is, as we go through this life and we stumble and we fall and sometimes trip head over heels falling, 
The fact is, those of us who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ have been saved. We have new life. We're not who we used to be. He lives within us, convicting us and encouraging us to go through this life. He's made all things new. It is an absolute miracle what God has done and is doing in your life and in mine. And we ought to give God the glory for it. It's the Father who's done this in us. And he's not done. He's not done. So the problem wasn't with their understanding. They clearly understood who Jesus was. They knew what he meant, but they didn't believe him. And he exhorted them back in chapter 8, Believe on me. Look at verse number 33. Some interesting words here in verse 33. It says, For the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? And Jesus quotes from Psalm 82 in verse number 6, and he says, which says this, I have said, God speaking, ye are gods, and all of you are the children of the Most High. Now, the picture in Psalm 82, and this is important to understand, otherwise we can all leave here saying, Pastor preached that we're all gods. And God says that we're all gods. Um, the word Elohim is used there, but the word Elohim in Hebrew can be used for um, a judge, a human judge. It can also be used for a, a god in general, which we know there's only one god. And in the right context, it can be used to refer to the one and only God, okay? And so he says there, I have said, God says, to this room, not this room, but the room he's speaking to, ye are gods, and all of you are the children of the Most High. And again, the picture of Psalm 82 is that of a court or a courtroom where God has assembled the leaders of the earth or the judges of the earth, those who have leadership in amongst men. And he warns them that they too will be one day judged. That's what he was doing in Psalm 82. And if God could call human, human beings judges or gods, then why should, Jesus is saying, why should you stone me for using the same word? Look at verse 37. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. You know, Jesus, again, points them back to the witness of the works of God, his Father, through himself. The cleansing of the temple. The healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. The healing of the blind man from his birth. Jesus says, if you won't listen to me, look at what God has done through me. And again, I say to you, who may have a loved one who you long to be saved, and they're struggling with the words of the Bible and the concepts of the Bible, I would, I would encourage you with this. As you talk to that person that you, long, that you love, that you long for the salvation of their soul, you might look at them and say, you know what, I can't explain all that there is in the Bible to you, but if nothing else, look at my life. Look at the difference in my life. If you're not exactly sure about all of the words of the Bible, look at what God has done in me. Am I the same father I used to be to you? Am I the same husband I used to be to you? 
Am I the same employer I used to be to you? God has, is changing my life. He has changed it. He is changing it. Look and see what God has done, and it is proof that Jesus is Lord. It is proof that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So they asked him, be specific, really. Tell us plainly. And he says to them, I have. And they take up stones. Look at verse number 40. And he went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. I find it, I find it so bittersweet, the end of chapter 10. He comes to his own. He presents, he literally presents himself, the way, the truth, and the life, to his own. The religious leaders, the ones who know the Torah, they know the law, they know the Pentateuch, like the back of their hand. They've read the prophecies. They know that he is, they they know what is supposed to come, at least they should have. But they're blind by their own arrogance. He presents himself to them, and in Jerusalem, that holy city, they reject the truth. He leaves, they, they want to kill him. He leaves, he goes back to the place, the beginning part of his ministry, about almost three years from this point. He goes back to that place near Jordan where he was baptized. And the people there believe upon him. Can I ask you this? Have you ever, has there ever been a time in your life where you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save your soul from death and hell? It's not for lack of understanding. It's not for lack of knowledge. He has revealed himself to you. You know the truth. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know the truth. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Believe, put your faith and trust in him, in Jesus, to save your soul from death and hell. So if you have, if you have believed upon him, can I ask you a question that's between you and the Lord? The answer is between you and the Lord, and that is, are you, how are you responding to him? Are you challenging his authority in your life? Almost declaring, you, you make it clear to me if you're really God or not. You better step up. You better be who I want you to be in my life. Are you challenging him? I wish I couldn't say this, but it's true. There have been times in my life where I've challenged him. His, whether or not he has the authority or not in my life to do what he wants to do. I've, I've at times in my life, pouted because I wish he didn't have. I wish I could order. And can I just order, order my life? And I can, can I just say how foolish, how foolish, and full of unbelief that is? At this point in my life, I am so glad I have not ordered my life. I am so glad that he is God, that he has worked according to his will. He has been so merciful and so long-suffering in my life. He has blessed me in ways I have never deserved. And I am so thankful. That doesn't mean that everything in my life is just perfect and easy street. Nor is it easy street and perfect in your life. But God is working in your life, mercifully and graciously and in love, 
And let's not be like the Pharisees and live our lives in unbelief, challenging his authority in our lives. I want you to take your hymnals, and if would you stand with me, if you could?